Radio Mano Papachango. to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. Uh, yeah, this episode is one of my personal favorites. Um, if you've listened to the podcast for a long time, you will have uh, heard of a guy named Tal Ruspoli, who is uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, he's been on the show, I think, twice. He was one of my first uh, guests way back when and then I had him on again so he yeah he was um episode number three and then I had him on again episode uh, 115 Tao is a fascinating dude um you can google him and read about his life he was married to the actress Olivia Wilde for seven or eight years and was you know a, sort of a Hollywood um personality there for those years as she was becoming more and more famous. He's an Italian prince, uh, a fantastic uh, filmmaker and uh, flamenco guitarist and just just a really interesting guy, fascinating family and and you know, he's one of these people who could have his family background so interesting that he could just sort of ride that through life, you know, he'd be welcome at any party or you know, he'd be anyone's favorite friend just because his family background is so interesting. But uh, he didn't just sit back and ride that. He's made a life that's fascinating in every respect. And today's guest is a woman who is uh, largely responsible for that, uh, his mother, Deborah. Uh, Deborah is someone that I've wanted to meet for so long precisely because Tao's such a fascinating guy. And when I say fascinating, I don't just mean like, oh, what an interesting guy this is. Uh, I mean something beyond that. And I, I guess what I mean is something more like there's an aura, there's sort of a magical aura around this guy. And I hope he doesn't listen to this because he'll be embarrassed by it. Um, but he attracts very interesting people. He, there's a magical quality to the way he lives his life that uh, it's one of these things that builds on itself because that quality is there. He attracts certain kinds of people who recognize that and resonate with that and add to that. And then you get this cumulative uh, community that forms around people like that. And um, anyway, so I've, I've always found him to be a fascinating guy, uh, someone whose company, obviously, I really appreciate. But more than just his company as a person, but there's something about the field that exists around him that I've always found interesting. And so uh, I was very much happy to find that his mother was at this um, art festival that Tao and, and uh, two of his 
friends have put together in um, a town called Bombay Beach, which is in the Salton Sea at the shores of the Salton Sea, which is this bizarre post-apocalyptic scene uh, a couple hours outside of L.A. in the desert. Uh, You may have heard of Slab City. There was a scene in um, Into the Wild where Christopher McCandless is hitchhiking and he ends up at Slab City. It's this... uh, Again, just Google these places because they're they're beyond description. It's really like uh, Mad Max without all the killing out there. It's it's really something to see. Anyway, um, there's this art festival that Tao and his friends have have put together, with the idea being to create art that then stays there to enrich the town because this place is so bizarre that it's a very popular place to go out and shoot videos and uh, do photography, you know, models, because it's it's visually very striking. And the town is in ruins and um, the light is very interesting and the reflections off the sea and it's this inland sea. It's like the Dead Sea. It's very um, salty. And um, anyway, but people come out and, and do their art and then they leave and they leave nothing behind. And a lot of the people who live there are very um, economically disadvantaged. And so Tao was fascinated by the place and, and he and his friends wanted to put together an art festival that actually did something for the local people. So uh, this past year was, they called it year one, but it was actually the second year. And they call it a Biennale, which means uh, every two years, but they do it every year. So the whole thing is is sort of a nod to surrealism, which is interesting in the context of this conversation because Tao's father was a very close friend of Salvador Dali, who's probably the most famous of the surrealist artists. Um, So anyway, Deborah Berger, Tao's mom, uh, as you'll hear, she was 17, I think, when she met the man that she later married and had Tao and Tao's brother with, he was an Italian prince, Dado Ruspoli, you can Google him too, he hung out with Dali and uh, Brigitte Bardot and um, uh, Federico Fellini and sort of the Keith Richards and, you know, the whole sort of European 70s, 60s and 70s intellectual bohemian royalty, that was his world and and so Deborah moved into that world as a very young woman. Uh, I think she says in our conversation that she met Dado at a party at Roman Polanski's house and Jack Nicholson was there and so on and so forth. Um, anyway, so that's that's one thing that's fascinating about her, that she has lived in, in very interesting worlds of art and actors and extreme wealth and and power and all that. But ultimately, what I found most interesting about getting to know her is how little any of that really matters to her and how what's most fascinating about her has nothing to do with any of that stuff. It's how she looks at life and the things she's learned. Um, You know, and I guess she's learned some of those things by hanging around with people who were very, very smart and had uh, very unusual 
perspectives uh, from which they could view the world. So I guess there is some connection in some ways. But um, the substance of this conversation is what I uh, I really enjoyed. I just listened to the whole thing, actually, before starting this little intro. So it's very fresh in my memory, even though we recorded it maybe six weeks ago. Um, anyway, so that's it. I hope you really enjoy this. And uh, if you do and you want to learn more about her son, uh, go back and, and check out episode number three and uh, 115 from the archives. And I'm, I'm sure I'll, uh, I'll sit down with Tal and do another one at some point in the not too distant future. Uh, okay, uh, housekeeping stuff. Uh, let's see, what can I tell you? I'm going to do a Roma soon, so I'll leave most of this for that. Uh, if anyone has any extra tickets to Burning Man that they're not going to use, uh, maybe drop me a line. I think I'm going to go to Burning Man this year uh, with a couple of friends, and none of us have tickets, so I know that as as uh, we get closer to it, uh, people start to find out, oh, I can't go, or I really just don't feel like going, or whatever. So if you hear of someone like that who's got some extra tickets, let me know. I think uh, I think I'm going to go for the first time ever, which will be interesting. Uh, I watched a thing called Three Mics, Three Microphones, uh, Neil Brennan. Very interesting. I think it's on Netflix. If you want to recommendation for um i don't know there are three mic. it's sort of a theater piece the three mics represent three different avenues of of expression for him one mic is one-liners he's a comedian he was um dave chappelle's writing partner for the chappelle show very very funny guy uh so one mic he comes out he just does one-liners uh sort of you know thought-provoking and then the screen goes dark, and then he comes out and he goes to the second mic, and that's uh, stand-up comedy. So he'll do some stand-up for a while, uh, really good, and then the screen goes dark, and the stage goes dark, and then he uh, comes out to the third mic, and that is uh, confessional, telling telling his life story, talking about his childhood, his relationship with his father and mother, and, and what his... Um, trials and tribulations of his life and and how humor was a way of uh, of dealing with that and that that's not funny that's moving it's touching it's uh, very revelatory um and so anyway he he goes through the three mics i think three times each so it's like nine parts and uh yeah i enjoyed it a lot uh i highly recommend it uh, what else? Rhythmia. The update on Rhythmia is, uh, it's still not a hard update. I, I'm, I'm talking with the people down there. I want to be able to give you all the details, um, before anybody starts making any commitments, but it looks like we're going to go for September, the week of September 10th to 17th. It's a Sunday to a Sunday. Uh, and I think what we're going to do is, Probably because it's kind of late for that. And I know a lot of people have already scheduled their vacation time and uh, financial thing. And so it's it might be too late to be doing this in September. So we're going to see how many people um, are definitely down to do this. 
And I think we're going to have a minimum, like if it's fewer than, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 people or something, maybe we'll, we'll hold off and do it another time. Um, cause they want to make sure it's worth it for you. If it's only four of us or something, well, you know, part of the attraction for you is meeting other people who listen to this podcast, part of other members of this community. And so if we, we're not really going to put it together, I don't want anyone to feel disappointed that they go down there. Just like, you know, four of us down there, that might not be, uh, what you had in mind. So I just want to make sure that everybody gets exactly, uh, you know, they know what they're getting and, and uh, that we can deliver what's being promised. I also want to make sure exactly how much it's going to cost and see if you know we can get a special rate or something. So I'll have more information about that by the next episode next week, um, which uh, not coincidentally will be with the founder. I think I'll do the two episodes in a row with the founder of Rhythmia, Jerry, and with the uh, chief medical officer, Jeff. So you'll be hearing much more about that in the coming weeks. Uh, yeah, that's it. I'm just uh, sort of running around doing some travels. I'll be in North Carolina for a few days, visiting uh, some folks out there at Spark Root Farm. Uh, I wanted to do a podcast with them and um, and uh, possibly feature them in Civilized to Death because I'm, I'm doing some sort of looking at some some folks and writing stories of people who uh, are doing things in their lives that are um, implementing some of the principles that I talk about in the book, sort of bringing their lives more into alignment with these ancient predispositions we have, even if they don't know that's what they're doing. It doesn't matter if they know. It's not like they're saying, hey, I'm going to, you know, restructure my life in, in alignment with my prehistoric predispositions. That's not... Uh, necessary it's just that they feel better and things work better and um they're happier with their lives and from my perspective i can look at it and say oh that's because they brought it into alignment with these things uh it doesn't matter if they're aware of it so that that's just something i'm doing out there i'll record a podcast out there at least one and then i'm going to visit a friend in uh, colorado for a couple days maybe i don't know how many if a bunch of people are in denver and want to get together, maybe uh, shoot me an email uh, through my website, chrisryanphd.com. You'll see Chris. There's a tab, Chris, and then under that there's a contact form. Shoot me an email if you're in Denver and uh, you want to get together for a beer or whatever and say hi. I don't know if I'll have a free evening, but if so, uh, and enough people respond, maybe I'll set something up. Uh, that would be between the 12th and 15th of July. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then around the 20th, uh, I'm going to head out in the van. Vanthropology 2017, motherfuckers. Yeah. So getting ready for that. Sort of doing some uh, some uh, final adjustments with my buddy Oliver down at Yorks and Lanks Automotive. If you're anywhere near Chatsworth, California, and you have auto issues, you should really give uh, give Oliver a call down at Yorks and Lanks. He does he doesn't want me to advertise his shop, and he doesn't really need the business. Uh, I'm just telling you because he's an amazing guy, a wonderful dude. And uh, if you're in that part of the world and you uh, have car issues, he's your man. Okay, enough from me. I really hope you dig this conversation with 
Deborah Berger as much as I did, or even half as much as I did. If you enjoyed half as much as I did, this will be one of your favorite episodes. I'm going to play you out with a tune that I've always loved and, and has this sort of like what I was saying about Tao. I've always felt like there was sort of a magical quality to this song. It was popular when I was a kid and I remember hearing it in the back of my parents' station wagon when we were driving somewhere and just thinking, yeah, that I, that song's special. There's something really cool about that. Uh, I never understood what the song was about. It's called Mother and Child Reunion. It's by Paul Simon. Never understood what the song was about. I'm still not sure what it's about, but I figure since, you know, there's this mother-child connection, uh, it's appropriate for this episode. Uh, Strangely, someone, I read somewhere that he came up with the title for the song from a menu in a Chinese restaurant, and the dish was called Mother and Child Reunion, and it was a dish composed of chicken and egg. sitting outside 
my apartment in Topanga, California with someone I've wanted to meet for so long because she's the mother of one of my favorite people in the world. And um, so, Deborah, thank you for doing this. Well, thank I, you, honestly, Christopher. I'm very happy to be here. I really enjoy what you do, uh, listening to you. There's a, a kindness about you oh, and a you. generosity, and you're truly interested in the people that you... I am. And, you know, I was very um, hesitant to, to ask you to do this because I felt that I'd be invading your privacy somehow. And, um, you know, I, I, the, the first three or four times that we ran into each other at the Biennale, I, I kept wanting to ask you, I don't know if you sensed I was feeling a little awkward, is because I kept wanting to ask you and then I kept thinking, no, don't bother her, she's a private person. and. You know, there's no need to, to drag her into your oh, little thing. Or, but this is something you love to do. Why I, would you yeah. hesitate a moment? I'm honored that you would ask Well, I'm, I'm really glad you feel that way about it. And it's, I think of, you know, something of John Lennon that he said how he would always wanted to be an open book. Hmm. And I feel as an artist and as a human being alive on the planet today, it's so important that we share our experiences, yeah. and thoughts yeah. and motivations right. and lessons. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I, I mean, I really love uh, having people on the podcast who have received no attention and they get to tell their story finally. You know, I, I really love when that happens. Um, but someone like you, who your life, your life has been so fascinating and, you know, you've hobnobbed with all these famous people. You've married to an Italian prince. You've lived in castles. You've been all over. I, I just sort of assumed you would be like, no, come on, I don't want to. You know, I'm, I'm, I've been famous. I've seen fame. I don't, I don't want any of that. I'm private no, now. But you know, that's it's not, it's not that. I mean, sometimes the press report on things and uh, pick up certain things, but I never thought of myself in as being, you know, famous or. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've certainly been adjacent to fame, right? Since you, your father was an actor, as I recall. I have a, a general sketch of your life, so. Forgive me for anything I get wrong or, or, you know, or distort, but my understanding was your father was an actor in Westerns that were being filmed in Italy. Yes, and in Alicante. Thank you so much. Oh, in Alicante. So Alicante sp spaghetti and, uh, Westerns right. in Spain. Yeah. And also in, in Rome, in China Chita. And yes, when I was about 12 and I went to live with him for a period of time, that was probably at the height of his career. And that was... Uh, that was fun because I hadn't seen my father in six years. And where were you living before that? I was living with my mother in, uh, in Los Angeles, in oh. California. Oh, okay. And because of a set of circumstances, I was sort of sent to live with his sister. And then he came to get me. For, he was shooting a film in Spain. And, and that was the beginning of my life being, uh, I think, one thing I'm starting to make my own decisions like do I want to go live with him mm. uh, his his second wife was a painter Carol Labravigo and she'd been with the Living Theater for many years and and when he was looking at it, my father was looking at a school and she sort of said you aren't really gonna send Debbie to school are you and he said well let's ask Debbie do you want to go to school and I was like no <laughs> I was never really turned on by school, much more by life and adventure. And so we traveled, I spent time in Egypt and in, you know, Venice, Positano. Um, yeah, I started spending time with artists and, you know, filmmakers and uh, 
He was living in like an intentional community or something? No, at that point he had a nice apartment in, uh, in Sforza Cesarina, part of Rome. Uh -huh. But it was later that he started a commune uh, in Sardinia. In Sardinia, wow. So you spoke Italian when you went there? Or Not no? at all. No. No. So in you were fact, 12? For months, all I learned to say was non capisco italiano. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then suddenly that part of my brain opened up and now hmm. I speak four languages. Which four? English, Italian, Spanish. French and Spanish. French and Spanish, yeah. It's a good choice. Those are good, good solid four. Well, always because I didn't really choose them. I think it was because of the place and, you know, like I, I, um, I'd done a little acting with my father in a couple of films that he was in. And then when I was like 15, I was, his agent asked me if I was interested in making films. And I said, sure. And I got the lead in the first film I went up for, which was in French. So I had to learn French. You had to learn French to, to do the film and yes. you're the lead. Wow. Yeah. What, what was the film? It was a, a French director uh, by the name of Marcel Carnet. He did films like The Children of Paradise and many French classics. So it was, it was a really interesting experience. It was his last film and it was a story of H.G. Wells about an angel who fell to the earth and I fell in love with the angel. Wow. That's so, very interesting. <laughs> yeah. You're 14. 15. 15. 15. Just turned 16. And the, that's around the time you met Tao's father, isn't it? Exactly the time I met Tao's father. I went to Rome to meet the director and was taken to a lunch at, uh, at Roman Polanski's with Andy Bronsberg and Gerard Brache and uh, Faye Dunaway and Jack Nicholson. They were working on Chinatown. Tao was there and we had an immediate connection. Hmm. Then I went away for almost a year making the film. And when I came back, we were immediately together. Really? And how old was he at that point? He was 49, 40, no, 47, 48, and I was like 16 going on 17. So, okay, now you're at Roman Polanski's house. This is, <laughs> pardon me, but it's, yeah, okay, you're at Roman Polanski's house. You have this connection with this man who's 30 plus years older than you. You're a teenager. Yes. Had, had you had a boyfriend at that point? Yes, yes, yes. I had okay. been traveling. I'd hitchhiked across North Africa. Oh, I had so you spent, weren't an like innocent little... I at that time. Uh, were you a Lolita? Were you, a, were you playing with your sexuality, do you think? Did you feel... You know, you have to look back and remember this was a very different time. Yeah. You know, it was in like 19... Uh, it was like 1973... Um, hmm. And it was, it was still very much a part of the, the after, aftermath of the 60s, but yeah. in the 70s, you know, we were looking to break all taboos. Yeah. Anything that was taboo, he said, okay, let's try it. Right. And, uh, and that was a part of it. And then there was also on another level, a very deep love between us and attraction and whether it's fate or destiny or karma, you know, there was, there was we had things to live out. Yeah. He was very significant in my life and I was very significant in his, I believe. Yeah. And yeah. out of this love came two children, Tao and Bartolomeo. Tao's the older. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And you went to to Thailand, that's, and that's why you named him Tao? Yes. Well, no, actually, I thought of his name when I was about seven months pregnant. And I just thought, Tao. I remember the moment I was standing in this, uh, you know, where I was, and, and I thought, if it's a boy, let's name him Tao. Where were you? I was in this beautiful dressing room with, like, gold leaf. Dado had extraordinary taste. I mean, that's 
feel very privileged to have lived in some very beautiful places. Yeah, yeah. And he had a very special way about him. He was always very uh, kind to to everyone. You know? In fact, at his funeral, the gardener, the waiter that served him in the restaurant, the people that knew him in the most banal ways, there was. I remember in India, you know, someone running along in the red district, you know, Dadu, Dadu, in Laos, in the hill tribes. You know, he, he touched people in all different uh, walks of life. Tao, I, I think in one of our conversations, I don't know if it was on the podcast or just hanging out, he, he said something about how he, I don't know if his father said this to him explicitly or, or he just always picked up the energy, that his father felt undeserving or, or that there was something ridiculous about some people having so much wealth and other people not. And so part of his spend it, who gives a shit, was in a way like a, a gesture towards social justice or seeking some sort of balance. I don't remember exactly how he put it. Does that resonate for you? Yes, I think so. But also he just... Um yeah, he didn't really have the sense of entitlement or like it had to be passed on and preserved. Certain things, yes. But I think it was also a burden in in a way to to have like this this castle to be responsible for. And it was never really left in a way that there was a way to maintain. So he was always like selling off parts of it and you know parts of the property and whatever he inherited, which it was his right to do so because if. Nothing, something isn't really yours unless you can do with it what you want. Yeah. And I think a lot of people that live through that, they get stifled by the idea of like, I just have to do what, you know, what I'm supposed to do in this generation. Right. And did you, I guess you, you got to know his friends. Was Dali still alive? Yes, well, that? I just spoke to him on the telephone. He was like, Vinayakas, I guess. I wish we had just gone, but... Uh, you yeah, just, many you just spoke. Oh, you spoke to Dali, and the, oh, okay, I thought you meant <laughs> no, just now. You me. spoke to him. You said I just spoke to him. I was like, "What? <laughs> da- he's back." <laughs> well, that, yeah, yes, quite a character. No, we had an incredible circle of friends. Yeah, you know, because whoever came to Rome would call Dado. So it could be Andy Warhol or Keith Richards or. Uh, or Dali. Yeah, Tal told me that Keith Richards was the one who, who told him to, uh, recommended that he learn flamenco. Yeah. Because if you can play flamenco, you can play anything, apparently. And he did. He learned. I mean, Tal yeah. listened. Tal always did listen to uh, what he had to learn in life. I've seen some photos of him when he was younger, and it seemed like he always had a camera in his hands. Was he? Was he always... Uh, creative and creating things because he, he also and I've only known Tao a few years but it seems like he's very simultaneously sort of oblivious and doesn't care about who he is and how people see him and all that but he's also extremely self-aware and observant is mm. is that something you recognize very early on or, or recognize at all? How do you, what was he like as a kid? I think when he was, when he was younger, he was just very thirsty to know, like, uh, you know, he, we'd have friends always over and, and they'd be going someplace and he'd say, you know, well, where are you going? Uh, how are you getting there? When are you coming back? And then, <laughs> can I come too? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, he would check everything out. He'd want to know why you did things. He'd want to know, uh, how things were done, he'd be listening in school, he'd do his homework. It was just like 
a sponge absorbing, absorbing. Yeah. I don't think he had the self-awareness that he has today, and that comes with when you have something to express. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so he was absorbing it from other people. Yeah. I, I don't have children, so I can't imagine what it's like to be a parent. But, you know, one of the reasons I was looking forward to meeting you is that he's such an extraordinary guy. I don't know his brother at all. I've met him once, so I can't say anything. But Tao's such an extraordinary guy, and as a mother, it must just be amazing to to i mean to the to the extent that you've had a role in creating this person but also just being around when such an extraordinary person is coming into form you know? and to feed that yeah that, that in, interest and that uh to, to see it come and see how he how he uses how he's he's able to use that because um that's something one has to develop it's not enough just to have that interest but it's knowing how to express oneself with it and it's that that give and take of of what's given to you in terms of materials and uh emotions and relationships and and then what what you have to to share of that and how you do it yeah i think the biennale is uh yeah it's wonderful to be able to feed that and and um and to see it grow yeah yeah so you okay let's get back to you as a child so you're 15 16 when you meet dado mm-hmm. you two hook up now, obviously that's going to take over your life right i mean that's well at the time okay i had hitchhiked across north africa i'd lived on boats i had been with my father in egypt when i was 12 so... how did you hitchhike across africa well at what 13 14 how does that I happen i was 15, 15 and i had a companion we went there were four of us we went down to sicily to pick grapes and uh and my father at that point was very kind of detached from uh his his wife had died and that's that's a whole other story but it left him really not caring a lot about so, you know he gave away all his possessions he'd hitchhike around from movie to movie and and just didn't want to have anything or lock his door anymore. I think he absorbed a lot of her beliefs and revolutionary ideas. Whereas before he was sort of the conservative side in the relationship, he suddenly embraced everything that he mm. missed her so much. Mm. And was she Italian? Uh, no, she was from New York. She was a painter and oh, said she was with, Ju- her, right. with Julian back in the living room. Right. Right. So, you know, I had a t- difficult childhood with my mother and I didn't really have a home that I was that I was leaving. It was more I had a great sense of adventure. Too. Mm-hmm. So that those things coupled together it was like someone was going to to Sicily to pick grapes and I was like, "Great, I'll go too." Yeah. yeah. And then uh and then from there I went to the Canary Islands and oh, my, I, was, I was just there. Just I love the Canary I Islands. Gomera. Oh, you're I've never been to Gomera. That uh, that's the whistle. That's where everyone whistles. Waterfalls. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So by that time, you know, I had felt, you know, and then I'd made this movie because I, I went and lived in France, in Brittany for almost a year. And, uh, and what else? Yeah, I, I felt very, I didn't, age is a funny thing. I don't really relate to it. And yet there's certain things that are very time sensitive. Like there's something very specific about being you know, different ages. And on the other hand, it, it can be such a, uh, 
such a kind of hang-up. Like you say, oh, mm -hmm. you're that age. Okay, right. I understand who you are, where you grew up, what kind of, you know, what you do. And, right. and I think that really limits us in how we see each other. It's funny how, like, my own experience, I, I feel age in retrospection. I don't feel age in the moment. So I never felt 15. But when I was 20, I look back and say, oh, that's, that's what it felt like to be 15. But I, never, but I didn't feel 20 when I was 20. You know what I mean? It's, it's something you only, or in my case, I only see looking back at it. Hmm. I think it changes all the time. I mean, like, is, is a year a long time? I don't know. It depends. What are you doing in that year? Who are you mm, with? Yeah. Uh, what's going on in your your spirit and your body? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So where did you see so you went from the Canary Islands to West Africa? Well, from the Canary Islands, then somehow we went back to Cannes because I remember my father had a film there, and that's when I met his agent. And I was still mm. only like fifteen. Uh, <laughs> so yes, looking back at when I see other uh -huh. women when they're girls when they're fifteen, I think, oh my, <laughs> yeah, what I was. Send her off I to had hitchhike. Some of the most extraordinary experiences of yeah. my life at that time. Yeah, because I was just so so open and so um, as I think we all are, but because of circumstances, somehow we talk ourselves out of doing things that are. Uh, that our spirit craves for mm. is kind of, uh, I mean, I've, I developed a taste for the unknown. I love to throw myself into a new situation. And well, like, again, I go back to the Biennale. I mean, who knew what was going to come out of that? Yeah. But you just have a feeling and you learn, I learn to use my intuition and instinct and passion to fine tune that compass or barometer of like where I should be and where I should go and I think yeah. that's uh makes life more and more interesting as we get older and it's one of those things where I think if we if we ignore our intuition it stops speaking to us absolutely it atrophies if you don't yeah. use something it's like a like a muscle yeah. but the more I think when I really came to the realization that inspiration and freedom and freedom to follow my inspiration is the most important thing in my life, then it becomes easier to tune into that people that are going to inspire me, people that I can be creative with, mm. what's going to be, uh, um, I don't want to say worthwhile, because everything is worthwhile, but, um, but the direction I want to take. Yeah. And I think... One of the things that Tao is very fascinated in, and so am I, is this nomadic lifestyle. To be able to travel light and to go with uh, an interesting project, like I can just decide to stay in a place. Now in Joshua Tree, there might be something interesting to do. So I know that I can rearrange my life very easily and have the creative tools I need just about anywhere. And I, this is an art, is to keep oneself uh, free enough to do that yeah while still growing roots and building things and uh you know i have a very full life in spain yeah yeah i was gonna say when you were talking i was like yeah that's how my life's been i'm always mobile and you know we were talking about yoga before i've never continued a lot of yoga because i'm well i'm here for a year then i go there then i'm gone and then i'm traveling and all this and so i kind of suffer sometimes from a lack of continuity in my life and i look at 
part of the cost of living the way I do is not having uh, children, not having um, like a home, a real home. But I look at you and you've you pulled it off. You have two great kids. They're, you know, adults, successful guys, and you've got a beautiful home. And I, I think it has to do with really uh, as much as possible embracing what is. Hmm. Because if I'm thinking of regrets or what I should have done when I was 20 or decisions or relationships or anything that's taking me in the past, like I went now I spend a couple of weeks every year in Italy where I used to live. Mm. And it's so wonderful to just go there and, you know, I'm not burdened with regret or a sense of entitlement or uh, nostalgia or any of that. Yeah. I can just be there today and say, I love being here and I love leaving because I'm <laughs> happy with what else has filled my life. Yeah, And yeah. those are the things that really, I think, stop us from being intuitive or knowing what our what what we need what our um, I see so much so often people have like a time in their life that has blocked them or someone that they're resentful for or something that they regret and then life like stops yeah. and I, I feel I'm you know I, I guess I work on it in ways there's times where maybe something happens and I think okay this could be a uh, could be something like that but then I'll, I'll do things I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do things that will re-nurture the love that I had at that moment and not regret certain choices and I think that is a huge part of being free to, to be in the moment and really perceive what's going on and, and, and live it fully yeah. yeah you're right when I was in the Canary Islands I was on Gran Canaria uh, this summer this past summer and uh it's just so beautiful. It's a lot like Topanga, actually. Lots of canyons and rock and, you know, sort of Wild West looking. And uh, there are these beautiful houses that are built into caves. So you have a facade of the house, but it's a, it's, the whole interior is in a cave. And uh, I was driving around and I'd see these houses and I'd think, oh, I should get a house like that. I could have a dog and I could have lemon trees and I could, you know, grow my own food and, oh, that's so beautiful and it's so great. And then I thought, wait a minute, if I had a house like that, who's going to take care of it? I like to travel. I, if I had a dog, <laughs> what's going to happen to the dog? I can't take the dog. Yeah. And I, I, I sort of, you know, it's a lesson I've learned many times and forgotten many times, but there's a big difference between appreciating something and wanting it. And I think we make that mistake. We conflate those two things. You know, you meet your your buddy's wife and she's beautiful and funny and smart. And you, oh, I want that. No, you don't. Just appreciate her as your buddy's wife. You don't need it for yourself. You don't need her. What would you do with her? You know, like she's happy with him. You know, there's there's this, <laughs> you know, we want things. We, we have this yeah. consumer uh, well, instinct. I wonder how much of that is really a part of our nature and how much is a conditioning from our that's what i'm thinking that it's this consumerism you deserve a new truck you deserve this that is huge in in uh burdening us is this sense of competition right this came up like two or three times in the past few days and and it's like when we learn that collaboration is so much more fun and stimulating Mm. and fulfilling than competition and yet it's so overrated competition. I think even Darwin yeah. 
in, uh, you know, he spoke of it maybe twice. He now you're talking my language. <laughs> you're right. He, he was he far. He symbiosis. Exactly. A, you know, exactly. But how we need each other. And he too. talked about love. He mentioned love like 90 times in Origin of Species. Yes. How often do you read about Darwin on love? Right. No, yeah. it's the survival of the fittest. A phrase the, he never used. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been taken, uh, and, and it's really deeply embedded. One has to consciously say, no, I don't want to compete. I want to collaborate. And there's this threatening feeling that you're, you know, that someone else is, you know, this, this whole violence of competitive. Yeah. And you're right. Rather it, than it, compassion. I think Darwin's been co-opted uh, as justification for capitalism. You know, Absolutely. Andrew Carnegie, the, the, one of the early you know, industrial billionaires of his day, he uh, gave a bunch of money to build libraries all over Pennsylvania and, and I think other states in the Northeast. Uh, and his only requirement was one book. He didn't care what other books, but The Origin of Species had to be in every library because he felt that it was a justification for his extreme wealth, that he was just fitter. He was smarter. He was abler. So that, you know, and you can see it still today everywhere. I, this is what I've been writing about this, this recent book I'm working on is how evolutionary theory has been co-opted for political uses and people read it. They don't know. They don't go back and read the original Darwin who has time to, you know, go back and read all the source material. But it's so clear that this competitive consumerist hoarding, zero-sum kind of mentality uh, is not innate in nature. And Darwin wasn't talking about that. Uh, as you say, it's, he was much more interested in how tribes cooperated and how, you know, and he said a, tri a tribe that's cooperative would be far superior to tribes that were individualistic. Of course they would. Yeah, there's, there's a great, um, I talked about the Pinaha people at the, in my talk at the Biennale. There's a, a scientist started coming down there. They wanted to do psychological testing on them because they're so, so, such a sort of primordial example of human cognition and all this. And uh, one of the groups were uh, a group of psychologists from MIT, I believe. And they had like a game set up so that they could uh, see who could recognize patterns quicker, men or women, or, you know, if they did this and did that. So the whole thing was set up to, to see how fast the people could do things. And um, Everett, Daniel Everett, who wrote the book and who lived with him, had to explain to these scientists, this will never work because you're setting it up so that someone wins. They'll refuse to cooperate. They'll refuse to participate <laughs> if there's a winner. Uh -huh. No one can win or lose. So especially with art. You know this. Uh, this um, you know, we so often say, like, what is your what? Is, what was the best piece, or what was mm. the you know? I mean, every I, I, certain people, like I think uh, Woody Allen and maybe even uh, was it um, Bill Cosby. A few people have said, I just refuse to take any awards mm. because it's uh, except for the People's Choice. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, yeah Woody Allen art never can't went. be. You can't compete. It's not competitive, and it's it's so different one piece to another. What I loved in the Biennale that we're just coming from the Bombay Beach Biennale Year One uh, is that everyone just came and created something with so much energy and creativity, and uh, and that it wasn't it wasn't about uh, there was nothing competitive about it. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, there were great people it. and there were some famous people that certainly didn't flaunt that. If you didn't know that what their piece or some background about it, it just stood on its own. Yeah. And the people, I didn't feel any sense of competition. It was really like the opera house. I was so moved by the opera house. I mean, with all those flip-flops from Nigeria, yeah. and people that had the stories behind it, and, and I felt James, the, you know, the artist who did that with his, with his uh, photography and his pieces, they were just so brave and yeah. bizarre <laughs> and so personal and revealing. Yeah. You know, yeah. It was like he was grateful to find a venue to, to finally now show this film after five years that he'd made it. Was he the guy in the, in the yeah, pink suit? Oh, all, my God. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, also Edward uh, Sharp. I mean, his choice of expression. Yeah, yeah. <gasps> uh, well, people who are listening to this wondering what the hell we're talking about yes. should go on Instagram, if you have it, and uh, search the hashtag Bombay Beach Biennale, uh, and you'll see what we're talking about. There are lots of photographs, or you can Google it. There's some articles that have come out. I yes, saw the Vice, New York Times, Vice, the LA, uh, LA Times, Weekly. LA Weekly. Yeah, yeah, those have New come York out. Magazine. In the last day uh, I or mean, two. how did they? How did this buzz get created all the way to New York? It's quite extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, because it wasn't advertised at all beforehand. It was only word of mouth, friend to friend. Uh, it's very exclusive, and and uh, it's funny how that works. It just sort of ripples out over the country. Yes. Yeah, I, I think next year is going to be a quantum leap in terms of attendance. We'll see. We'll see. We'll yeah, see. It, might, it might be stealthy. You might have to move the, the time or the place. Well, you can't move the place. but. <laughs> uh, so you, you've been, okay, so you did this movie. Have you, did you then continue as an actor? I or? did. I did a few more films. I did something with Otto Preminger where oh, first wow. they had uh, Robert Mitchum starring. And after three weeks of shooting, he fired Robert Mitchum and got Hero Tool. I mean, he fired like five people on that, on that movie. Did you um, hang out with Robert Mitchum at all? Uh, no, not much. Uh, of course, a little bit because you know we we were there in like Jean Le Pen or in in these little in the, the th south south of France. And I think Robert Mitchum always struck me as someone that would be cool. Yeah, Apparently, but so was Peter O'Toole. He really? took his place, and he was very cool. Because I, I remember reading Robert Mitchum like was uh, like hopping trains and stuff before he became an actor. He was a hobo, and he did some time in jail. And he was like a regular guy, sort of. And then, I don't know, he got discovered in his 20s, I think. Late 20s, maybe. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember. It's been a while since I read that. But at the time, I remember his sort of laconic, bemused expression. I sort of felt like, oh, okay. He's, he got into acting late in life, and he knows it's all a lark. And just sort of... And then there was Kim Cattral and Isabel Huppert, myself, uh -huh. and, uh, and two other girls... What was so the we were film? The debutantes, Rosebud. It was called Rosebud. In uh, reference to. In reference to somewhat to Orson Welles' film. It's a yacht that we're on called Rosebud, uh -huh. and we're kidnapped by Palestinian terrorists. Oh. Supposedly, our our families have this incredible wealth and power. Is this world, around so. the time of the Patty Hearst thing, or? Uh, let's see. This was, I guess, like 1975. So it was after yeah. Patty Hearst, just just after, probably. I think she was the early 70s. The heiress being kidnapped yes, by terrorists. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, and then I did like a mini series for the TV, the Italian TV, and and a few other things. But my heart was never really in it. It right. was like okay, 
but now the passion and inspiration I feel for art and architecture is unparalleled to, I mean, there were moments with acting and still I do some acting with some friends in a, uh, a kind of conference workshop that we do with the Echo Techniques. One of the people I've been very fortunate to have as a mentor is John Allen. He's, uh, and it's a, he's a lot the part like with, um, you know, John Lilly and Timothy Leary. I, I, John Allen was a real visionary in, in ecosystems and, in, and also in synergy. Mm. You know? So people come together and he started different projects around the world which are still alive, like the October Gallery in London and you have, uh, one in Puerto Rico, the Heraclitus, which is this ship that's traveled around. It's uh, 300,000 miles around the globe and wow. they built it out of ferrous cement. And, but really I learned with him about working in small groups mm. and collaboration and a lot of acting and uh, you know workshops sure. meditation uh, but especially working in small groups and what it takes like the group animal certain things that you have to watch out for but when you're aware of it like there has to be a leader there has to be a secretary and a timekeeper mm. and then you have to have because you have like a deadline you have to do a project and present it and do a theater piece about it that night mm. So if you don't have a leader, or at least one of the things that happen is the group comes to what we call kill the leader. Like very soon we'll start saying, why, are, why is she the leader? Why is he the leader? Let's change the leader. Let's kill the leader. Instead you say, no, wait, look what's happening. Let's support the leader and see how we can work together. Timekeeping, because you have to have a deadline and, and the secretary, because you'll go on talking about a lot of great things and then say mm. suddenly, what did we say 20 right. minutes ago? Right. So there's somebody keeping time. So that has been a huge inspiration to me and uh, tools that I've learned of how, what we can do when we work together. And I saw so much of that at the Biennale. Yeah. People really with a common vision. It's more important than, than uh, materials or time. It's, it's like the key element to do anything yeah. worthwhile. Yeah. And so I, I guess we'll just forget the chronology. Okay. I, was, I was trying to stick with the chronology, but it, there's just too much going on. Can we just jump around? Absolutely. Or, or would you rather go by chronology? Not at all. That's okay. fine. Okay. <laughs> so there's a whole part of your life here. John Lilly, uh, John Allen, Timothy Leary, uh, California, intellectual, psychologist, consciousness. Oscar Jenniger. Oh, you knew Oscar Jenniger yeah. here in L.A.? Yeah. Uh, and so you've seen Otto Preminger was one of his patients, right? Who did the LSD, Jack Nicholson, uh, yeah, and and, and he, Peck. I think, yeah, um, oh, there's a famous woman singer whose name escapes me right now, but it's been years since I read about him. And those beautiful paintings. Yes. He had the artist come in and do a painting, and then take some acid and do another painting. And I think um, my friend Rick Doblin has has those paintings. Mm. Um, he, Oscar left them to him. Uh, yeah, wow. How did you meet Oscar? I think it's, was it through, uh, probably through this Echo Techniques group of synergists. Mm. But also I knew Timothy Leary from, uh, you know, Eileen, Eileen Getty, who is a dear friend and is, but I don't see much of her anymore. Is she, she was a lot, she was very close to, to Timothy and, Back at Millbrook? Or? No, actually my father's second wife was at Millbrook. Uh -huh. 
So yeah, it was, you know, even now today, there's people that come back into your life or, you know, years, decades go by and then it's like no time has passed. Or yeah. We look a little different, but uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I've been fortunate to gravitate towards or be in the circle of some very individual, you know, great individualistic people. And Have you heard of Stanley Krippner? Did no. that name ring a bell? He was um, in that circle. He knew uh, Timothy Leary and John Lilly and Alan Watts, and mm. uh, he was at Millbrook for a while. Um, he's one of my closest friends. He's he was my. Mentor. I'd like to know him. He's wonderful. <laughs> he is a wonderful man. He's in his mid eighties now. He's sort of the youngest of that crowd. You know, uh -huh. he was um, he was at a party in New York and. Uh, um, oh, what's his name? The percussion, percussionist for the Grateful Dead, Mickey Hart. Mm -hmm. Mickey Hart was there, and Mickey Hart mentioned to someone that he wanted to learn. To, uh, he wanted to be hypnotized as a way to, you know, increase his rhythm or whatever. And someone said, "Oh, that guy there is a, you know, he does hypnosis." And so that they met at that party. It was like '68 or something. So they've been great friends ever since. And then Stanley was sort of the in-house psychologist to the Grateful Dead, and. Um, Joseph Campbell, did you know him at all? I've listened to his tapes on. Yeah, the power myths. of myth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure you you you've crossed paths somewhere in there. Uh, he's he's a hilarious. I'll tell you a very funny Stanley story. We were driving to Lascaux. He came to visit me in Barcelona, and he got an invitation from the French government to visit the prehistoric art at Lascaux. Sistine Chapel of prehistoric art, totally closed to the public. And uh, we're driving up, and I had, I had had a brief affair with a woman who was, <laughs> I won't say crazy, but very confusing. And I told Stanley oh. about her. <laughs> for me, for me, I don't know. I think for everybody. But anyway, she. So I told Stanley about it because we always talk about sex. He's fascinated by sex, and as am I, obviously. And so. Um, Stanley said, oh, Chris, Stanley's gay, by the way. So at this point, he's in his 70s. He says, Chris, I don't know why you waste your time with these women. I know a woman who you'd really like, and she's beautiful and wonderful. And now Stanley's sense of beautiful is maybe not exactly like mine sometimes. So I was like, well, who's the woman? He says, well, she's in her late 20s. I, I last saw her at her 21st birthday. Her mother's a dear old friend of mine. I said, really? So what do you know about her? He said, well, I, I, she's, and I think she's studying theater or something. But um, her mother was briefly married to Timothy Leary, uh, but she was a fa Swedish fashion model. It didn't last long. And then she met a man who's a good friend of the Dalai Lama who teaches at Columbia now, um, Buddhist studies. And, and I thought, well, I'd love to meet her parents. You know, I don't know who this woman is, but I'd love to meet her parents. I said, and he said, okay, next time you're in California, I'll call her mother and I'll arrange for you to have dinner. I think you'd like her. So I'm driving along and this thing, the Timothy Leary thing and the Dalai Lama, there's something familiar about it. And then finally I said, wait, Stanley, you're not talking about Uma Thurman, are you? <gasps> <laughs> and he said, how did you know her name? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She's a movie star. He said, what? Oh, she is? I had, he had no idea she was a movie star. <laughs> and a very, and a wonderful actor. Yeah, yeah. So that was my, that was my one chance at uh, Uma Thurman. But she was already with someone else, so never happened. Mm. <laughs>
you look sad. I was, <laughs> I'm not really sad. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's Stanley. Yeah. So how did you know John Lilly? Did you? John Lilly. Well, with the uh, with the sensory. Uh, yeah, he deprivation the thing. He, first it was sensory deprivation, but then I think he changed it to like sensory enhancement because you would really yeah. get in touch with uh, more senses than, yeah. than like the senses we feel now are like their distractions from. So I knew him, yeah, he with uh, like, um, yeah, I, I, I don't remember the first time we met, but I hung out with him quite a bit with. Uh, with friends in common, and then Craig, who worked with him. Yeah, I. I was I he in California? He was in California. He was here in Topanga. Oh, was he in Topanga? I didn't know that. I always pictured him he up in Big Sur. He was. Uh, where was he? No, I'm pretty sure it was up here in Topanga. Yeah, probably mm. quite close to here. Yeah, in the hills, yeah. inland a bit. There was a lot happening back here. Did you ever get to Sandstone? No. You know, Swingers Retreat that was up here. The Gates Elise wrote about in Thy Neighbor's Wife. It was one of the first sort of open swingers, uh-huh. you know, communities in the early 70s, early to mid 70s. It was up here. And of course, the Mansons were back in here somewhere. Yeah. Speaking of Roman Polanski. Yeah, what a life. What a life he had. A lot of trauma. He was. If I remember correctly, he was on a flight from Europe to L.A. with Jersey Kaczynski. Mm-hmm. And they missed their connecting flight in New York, spent the night in New York, and that was the night that Sharon Tate was killed. So he felt that if he had been there, we could have, you know, it, it's always that feeling like also as a child, it's a, you know, his, his parents were both sent to concentration camps. Yeah. It's that feeling you could have done something if only... A bit older, or a bit, uh, or if things had only been different, but yeah. Do you uh, do you know him? Have you? I haven't seen him in decades. Yeah. Yeah. Jack Nicholson, any of those folks? Um, you know, when you're talking about chrono- chronology, yeah, in chronological order, it's it's sort of like I feel at this point in my life, there's been so many uh, almost like different lives mm. that I that I've lived, uh, or different different times and different uh, situations and yet and there was a moment where it all seemed kind of discombobulated yeah and at this point in my life I feel like everything is sort of happening at once (laughs) that time doesn't really exist and the fact that I can go back back or forward or be in the life I used to have in Italy and just feel the love I can go to Spain. I have a full life there. I yeah. can go to Bombay Beach and have a full life there in yeah. ten days. You know, suddenly I'm working on a community center, which I love that project, the uh, Kintsugi Station, right? And and putting together the pottery studio and uh, and then working also in the Biennale and doing pieces of ceramics and my sculpture. Uh, I don't have this attachment. Oh well, that was a long time ago. But so when you, we talk about these things, in a way, it's very present. It's just like it's mm. still happening now. And yeah. on the other hand, it's like another a past life. Yeah. It's like when someone dies, you know, they're, part of them's gone, but a, the part that touched you is still there. So 
I think experiences are that way as well. Well, you know, also leaving, like people will ask me sometimes, oh, don't you miss this place or this person or this time? And it's like, I, I don't think that way. Yeah. I, I don't, uh, it's like not in my vocabulary anymore. If I, if I miss, if that's the word, something or someone, it just means I need to start heading in that direction. It's time for them to come back mm. into my life. You said anymore. I don't have that vocabulary. It's not in my vocabulary oh, anymore. To think, of, to not to be nostalgic or yeah. to be thinking of uh, things in those terms. So, did you learn to not think in those terms? I think it's a question. Maybe it's about becoming more and more present and accepting things as they are. And and the again, going back to not having regrets or trying to change the past. These they sound kind of absurd, but but I think it's a part of our condition that we yeah. do that. Well, yeah, you reminded me of Stanley with that. That's actually why I mentioned Stanley, because I, I was talking with him one time and I said, um, you know, would you, you know, where would, if you could meet any, uh, any famous writer, you know, from history, who would you meet? And uh, I said, living or dead? And he said, oh, not, not dead, only living. I said, why? He said, I don't, I don't waste my imagination on things that couldn't happen. <laughs> 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 I love that part of your talk where you said about Jesus that everyone was talking about. Right. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who yeah. is this? Did you meet him? <laughs> Did your father meet him? Yeah. Did your grandfather meet him? Yeah. No, then let's not talk about him anymore. <laughs> exactly. Why are you wasting my time? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, but it's true. Like, And you're talking about the same thing. It's a sort of mental discipline of... Because you're right, everything is happening. Everything is present. Everything. Like now, when you thought of him, I could see him present. Uh, it's like yeah. You, we, yeah. I that that sort of when, when someone passes that I've that I love or loved, it's. Uh, I think how grateful I am to have spent that time with them, rather than the loss that they're not here now. And yeah. And, and maybe it is a bit of a a training in the in the mind because I I don't want to harden my heart, like. Or things that have happened in the past that you say, okay, a, a separation, or if if uh, somebody hasn't behaved well, or you know, not to to find the forgiveness and the acceptance, and okay, that was on my path. I needed that experience. What can I? How can I grow through it? Or what? How do I get through? But it's never about what somebody else did. Mm. It's how how I integrated into my my being. And yeah. I think there are ways that you have to be sort of careful to talk, not to talk to people that encourage you to be bitter or to be uh, mm. angry or to yeah. say it's that person's fault or you should have done that because it's a it's a bit like a, a like a I don't know, I think we're so susceptible to the people we're around and, and what they say and, and think so I try to go to the person that's going to help me understand with compassion and forgiveness and mm. acceptance and, and that helps tremendously and I try to tune out the the voices that are mostly of some kind of conditioning or society or, you know, what's been a mistake. There are no mistakes. Mm. No, certainly not in, in the, well, I mean, I think, and doing anything that inflicts suffering or harm to somebody, certainly that is, uh, you know, wrong. It's just not what we're supposed to be doing. But I can't judge what you do. I can only, I can only try to change myself. Yeah. You have the sun in your face. Do you, should we, That's good. You okay? Yes. Yeah. Because we can pause this anytime you want. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's... I have a lot of friends right now um, who are in different kinds of self-betterment businesses of one sort or another, optimization of this or that part of your life, life hackers, body, you know, how to hack your diet and get a, you know, fully nutritious meal in this little packet and you just add water and shake it and, you know, it's all... It seems like this striving for efficiency and the optimal physical conditioning. And and I just get exhausted by all that. Mm. You know, I I think, I I mean, these are people I respect and and I, I, their motivation, I think, is positive. They're trying to help people be healthier and happier and all this. But I think we Americans especially tend to be so competitive we're even competing with ourselves exactly like i need to be happier <laughs> i need to be stronger than i was yeah did you ever read I the am. onion do you remember the onion oh so funny yeah so funny yes i remember one cover where it was uh the world yoga championships and there was a yogi you know the shaved head and everything with his arms up in the air and he said i am the serenest yeah right. <laughs> i've lost my ego that's right more than more you than losers <laughs> yeah. yeah it's kind of a self-defeating thing but yeah john Lilly, i i never met him but stanley uh talks a lot about him and really admired his John Lilly something I just remember that yeah. he said that I I I it's something to share he said when people talk about falling in love he said I don't fall in love I rise to it ah nice yeah nice yeah wouldn't it be great I was going to say wouldn't it be great to meet him you've, you've met him what am I saying <laughs> <laughs> yeah hmm. uh, when you think are there any other names that I can I can get you to drop? I mean, oh, I think so, we've dropped so many. We I'll dropped be so picking many? them up on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, I mean I feel this way with Stanley. It's it's just so uh, it's so wonderful to be one step from these people that you know we've read about, we've heard about. I mean, I know lots of people who uh, are in, in flotation tanks all the time. I mm-hmm. have a friend who designs them in Austin and sells them all over the country. And you know, it's it's a, a lot of people I know. That's a big part of their lives. So to them, John Lilly is he's the guy. He's the founder. He started it all. You know. And also, I know a lot of people in the world of hallucinogens and using hallucinogens for healing whether spiritual or physical or you know that that world so now we're talking about timothy leary and ram das and and john lilly ram das what a beautiful soul yeah uh tao took me to see to hear him speak i think it was in the 90s -hmm. talked about uh yeah and then i was i actually spent some time with him because a friend of mine was was writing a book mavericks of the mind oh david are you kidding me that when i was in graduate school uh, Stanley, as a way to encourage me to take myself seriously as a scholar and get some things published, arranged for me to review that book for a psychological journal, the psychology journal. And I think that review was my first academic publication. <laughs> <laughs> Mavericks of the Mind. Uh, yeah. A great book. Sure. Huh? Great book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's funny. Funny connection. Anyway, I'm sorry. I no, so that's you. A, so I got to actually just spend time with uh, Ramdas, somebody I admire tremendously, and his his words have always, uh, you know, meant 
has always had very very beautiful message and perception and path that he's taken as a spiritual philosopher you know after being at Harvard and yeah. professor and then all that LSD you know and, uh, Stony Brook and with Timothy Leary and then to come out of it you know with a loincloth and such a giving <laughs> soul yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah yeah did you you mentioned the Rolling Stones did you have any contact with the Beatles no no they were, they were in that yeah. same on that same path you know right well the stones was more well because of dado and then keith had come to spend a a weekend at the you know <laughs> okay i mean i think of my life as being very you know creative and i've had the 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 luck or the grace of my spirit to pretty much jump into things and not uh uh not be guided by fear but more by uh imagination and in enthusiasm adventure um sorry i lost something about <laughs> something about keith oh yeah so right then now and then i'll be saying there's like i have a i have a little uh drawing on my wall that was uh signed at the end of the 81 tour that uh uh with all the rolling stones that signed it and they're promoting seven so saying oh what's that oh, well, how they oh yes keith was at the castle and then i was flying on their plane you know it's <laughs> It, it's not that different from, I mean, every moment that we're alive is pretty much a miracle. I mean, look at what's going on around us. Yeah, yeah. And uh, some, somehow we think that moment is more important or more. Yeah. That, so it, it just makes me laugh sometimes because it's not that I was any happier, that I felt my life was worth more or that I had uh, any more uh, meaning, you know. It's maybe, it's those experiences of, being with someone who's passing or, or, or being able to, to uh, inspire someone or to create something beautiful or to, uh, you know, to be fully aware and, and feel your heart. Those are the moments that I think are, are worth sharing and saying, mm. look at this moment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fame is a funny thing where from outside it seems so important and then when you're inside it's nothing there's nothing there and i think we all have these incredible thoughts and experiences uh, like okay these great minds like timothy leary and john lilly and the work he did with the dolphins and uh writers and oscar jenner there's certainly people to be honored sure but we all are yeah we all are and we all have something i realize is that rather than oh well, i have something to do with these people and all of those is that yeah. If you're alive on this planet today, we've got something in common. We've got some path that we're sharing. And this kind of, again, it's the selectiveness and the mm. competition and these things that are kind of inbred into us in order to further the capitalistic society. Yeah. And so when you say, you know, I'm really much happier with less. Yeah. I'm really happier when I spend time with somebody who's who's doing something that they feel good about or who is is happy or who has something to share of their life that's i'd, I'd rather uh i'd rather you know not that i'd rather i value those those moments. just as i'm talking i'm thinking of edward sharp doing his piece vomiting <laughs> at the biennale which was a really strong statement were you there for that i was yeah what was your impression well, Why did I, it leave you? I didn't you... know who he was, 
so I, I didn't know what was coming. I, I just like, oh, everyone's going to the where it wasn't the opera house. It was next to it. <laughs> the pussy bar. <laughs> the pussy bar. Okay, right. Yeah. They, it was gorgeous with that yeah. red piano and the yeah, candles. Yeah, and the candles. And total so beautiful. Ruin. I mean, breaking the walls down. Well, I was by the guy who broke the wall, so I didn't know <laughs> if that was part of the the act. That that you know, the, he came out. He was covered in flour. It was like clay or flour, uh-huh. some kind of dust. Yeah. But. Um, I know his music from many years, and he's mm. just this incredible dancer, just mm. so fluid. And 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 his music, I love his music. He you know, he did the soundtrack for Robert Redford's film, the you know when all is lost. Just incredibly oh, beautiful the, music. I know he got a golden. The sailing. Gold. I think he got the Oscar for that too. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, when he's mm. so his music is just extraordinary. Right. I was so looking forward to, you know, <laughs> one day dancing with him or hearing him, whatever, seeing him dance, hearing yeah. his music, and we just come from that opera. Oh that yes, was very so high art. Beautiful. This woman who had she was there last year and had written her own opera and did Sunset oh. and by the boat and by the sea and. And seeing this passion and this beauty that just uplifted my spirit to in a celestial way. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be fun. And I had heard something about he was going to be puking, but I thought he was not really going to do that. <laughs> so I got up close. Oh, you were, you were in splash I range? I helped peel off the paper of the, like, the oh, light box. <laughs> and, uh, and then I just, you know, as time has passed and I've seen some of Tao's photographs and I realized how what a strong message this was, and his choice to do it was not easy. I mean, it's not just... Uh, it's not but, something he does all the time. No, I think it's the only time he's done that. <laughs> but the, the idea that here was this other art that was so, so vast and generous and so perfect pitched, mm. and then here is somebody who's gained a lot of fame, mm. you know, his choice was to, to puke. Uh, you know, accompanied by piano, by the piano, yeah, and then yeah. also to make a painting out of it. I mean, in one way, he's really sh- sharing his guts and his. Yeah. His, uh, well, there's also the the commentary on commercialism, because I heard later that Coachella had uh, has a contract that if you've ever played at Coachella, you've signed a, a non compete clause that you cannot perform again within 10 years within 100 miles or something right not even if someone's house or anything so that was one thing but also the fact that one of his songs has been just so overplayed at least for him and he's always asked to play the same thing mm. and, and that that was what he wanted to do was that song with just, a, no one mm. is expecting this <laughs> <laughs> well it was you know again at a distance i think my expectation and all that got in the way yeah but now I think it was a very brave and, uh, and um, what is the word? I, I wish people could see the expression you just <laughs> <laughs> It was some, something in the gut there. there was a, it was very brave and But you know, art is not churning. always meant to uplift your spirit uh-huh. to the gods, yeah. right? It can also be, you know, that's what he's experiencing. That's what he had to share. Guttural. Yeah, and apparently he drank uh, ketchup beforehand to give it that beautiful. Yeah, I mean hue. those are details that that you know what actually him do it, but and then I think the I think the actual act was again quite quite brave and revealing, you mm. know, for what's going on in his. I don't know. 
And, and he did it with, with flair as well. There was a, a sort yeah. of grace to it. He put his fingers down his throat and then there was a flourish as he, as he uh, erupted on the stage. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it had it a very awesome. strong impact on me. I mean, <laughs> in fact, of all the incredible things that, are there, that happened there, that's, uh, that's one of them that really... Uh, then again, that's, that is the, also the purpose in art, is to really get you stimulated thinking about why this had such an impact on me. Yeah. Was, to get back to your time with Dada, was surrealism an important part of his life? I know he hung out with Dali ah. a lot. Did he know Bunuel as well? Cocteau. 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 Um, just thinking something that, uh, <laughs> that Dali would do as an exercise was just to uh, to say random phrases and words that are completely mm. uh, uh, non non sequiturs. Yeah. Yeah. Just to keep to the keep random the brain, thing. Yes. Yeah. And you'd be amazed at the images that come to you when you do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it is a bit of a of an exercise to keep your brain from always thinking you have to. You know, something has to lead up to something else, mm. or uh, have a purpose. Right. Or you know, sometimes it's good just to change everything, like yeah. in the house, move everything around to see it different. Right. Doesn't have to, or change what you're doing. It doesn't always have to be to do get a better job or make more money. Sometimes yeah. you just have to change. And it's actually, I mean, to bring it down to a very pedestrian level it's it's demonstrated that the best thing you can do for your brain is to constantly learn utterly new things not learn more of what you already know in other words if you're an artist not to just be you know learn more about art if you're an artist go learn swahili you know learn to tumble whatever just something that is look at things upside down when i'm working on a piece i always try to uh see it in a different context ah. and that's something that Gala used to do for Dali like she would take his paintings and put it in the garden somewhere so ah. that he would not be expecting to see it ah. it's like you go back into your studio and you've seen you look at that part and same with our our house and yeah. our place we live it's like you see the chair should be like that or the dishes should be done like that um, <laughs> we did a dinner with the again with the synergists and the we had one of our conferences near uh, you know on this island just near where Dali lived so we did a surrealist presentation and I put all of the knives and forks in like completely different ways you know like upside down and under the plate and in the glass and and, and in a very free group of people there was still somebody who said well wait a minute we should do <laughs> then, but you can catch yourself and say, oh, yeah, that's what yeah, we're doing. Yeah. Right? We're doing surrealism. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, the Luz Bunuel is one of my favorite people. I, first time I saw a Bunuel film, I had no idea who Bunuel was, no idea what surrealism was. I was with my professor as an undergrad, with a professor. We went to New York for the weekend. He had a friend who had an apartment. His friend was gone, so we could stay there. And... My professor was, his name was Eric, and he was looking in the paper like, oh, what, you know, we should go to a movie there. Any movie you want to see in the world, it's in New York, I'm sure. And uh, he was looking and he said, uh, oh, Bunuel, there's, there's a Bunuel double feature up in, near Columbia. You want to go see some Bunuel? And I said, sure. I, don't know, I, don't, I didn't know anything. I, I was 18 or 19 or something. And he says, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Oh, that's a great film. Okay. 
So I'm thinking it's a documentary about like a Marxist, you know, because <laughs> my professor was a Marxist literary critic. And uh, so, okay, some Marxist analysis of, you know, bourgeoisie behavior or something. And we got up there and we went to have a beer at the West End, which is the bar where um, uh, Jack Kerouac hung out with Allen Ginsberg. It was sort of their little scene up there. And uh, and we were having a beer before the movie. And he said, uh, Eric said, oh, it's too bad we don't have some weed. I'd love to be stoned for this movie. I said, yeah, I don't have any weed, but I, I actually have some LSD in my wallet. <laughs> and, and, he, and he said, oh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't. Oh, my God, we shouldn't. And so we took this LSD and we went to the, the cinema. Now, again, I'm expecting a documentary, right? <laughs> and we sit down and I'm so high that I put my hand on my, my thighs and it was like, wait a minute. Did I just put my hand on this other guy's thighs? <laughs> Or did he just put his hand on my thigh? Like, whose hand's on what thigh here? You know, I can't even keep track. And then the film starts. I'm sure you've seen the film. Yes, yes. And, I mean, I remember there's this fancy dinner, and there are, like, the servants going around with the platters of hors d'oeuvres, and then there's a close-up, and it's, like, bloody meat, you know, blood dripping onto the toast and hair still (laughs) on it. The eyeball, that's... (laughs) Right, the eye, that's the, the... Le ca- le, the the Andalusian the dog, the, the, the ah, Andalus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, for people who have not seen a Luis Bunuel film, I highly recommend it on acid if, if you can arrange it, <laughs> if you can handle it, it'll rock your world. But yeah, then I read when I went to Asia, I took two books with me my first trip. It was Jung's autobiography, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, and um, My Last Sigh. Bunuel's autobiography. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful, both fantastic books. So yeah, anyway, it's uh, Bunuel and surrealism, Spanish surrealism is a very special, bizarre for that culture. You know, it's, I love Spanish culture. That's another one of our shares. Do you think there's like pockets in time in which these... Perce- yeah. perceptions change and yeah, definitely. surrealism is allowed and definitely. pop art and- well Barcelona was, was ruled by anarchists it was the most radical you know vanguardia, la vanguardia the newspapers, it was, it was where it was all happening the whole, do you know the Shempla the whole area, the new area was all built um, specifically for, to protect workers each block, the interior of the block, was a green space so that the workers' children had a safe place to play. Every block in the Eschample was built that way. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, Serda. Josep Serda was the first urban planner in the world. So Barcelona was this radical, wild, experimental place, and now it's conservative Catalans, Ooh, you know. I don't know about that. And, and then there was the modernists, the, the yeah. beautiful kind of architecture. Well, Gaudi, Gaudi, yeah, yeah. The, there were about 10 of them, just one, I mean, probably many more, but yeah. that were just really as yeah. uh, incredible as, well, I mean, Gaudi is maybe on a level of his own. But yeah. their whole philosophy about bringing... The feminine, uh, honoring the feminine spirit. Mm. Like you wouldn't just walk into from outside to inside. There was always a transitional space that mm. would also be, be, be with like stained glass leaves and flowers and like the Palau de la Musica. Yeah, have, what a great just, building. 
completely embracing the feminine spirit, the the, the muses in the in the theater and the, uh, the all the mosaics and uh, and and really honoring the spaces in which the feminine activity is cooking or uh, the being with the children, the nurseries would be so beautiful and the and the kitchen would be so yeah. beautiful. This is when America was still like having the kitchens in some closet somewhere, you yeah. know, closed doors and Yeah. 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 I think about that in, in terms of Vienna as well. Vienna at the beginning of the twentieth century, you had Freud and Jung and Gustav Mahler and just all the and uh, Egon Schiele and Ooh. Klimt, yes. you know, and the Bauhaus movement. You had all this free, wild right. creativity, you know. And now it's very Before it's that, banks the and, and the, the whole uh, yeah Matisse. And it's almost like there's a like a cloud that sort of moves around the world and so settles in different places. So where do you think we are places. now, or when has the cloud been most well, I think uh, there was definitely you. some fog out there in Bombay <laughs> Beach. Right? I don't know if the cloud, the whole cloud, was there, but there were there was a, was, a bank uh, of there, fog. There were people that I saw in the beginning that yeah. you know happened to to come into it. A charming young uh, two two men. One was a designer, and the other I think was in in in, in computers. But I mean, they were. They were lovely, and they just stayed. But I mean, at the end, we were there like in tears. He would mm. say, "I'm so I, I I can't even believe what I've seen." Yeah, could you imagine just stumbling on that? Yeah, you just oh, let's go check out this Bombay Beach town. I've I heard something about it, and you get there, and it's like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> That's the magical moment. Yeah, right well, there. I saw a few people that experienced yeah. that. Like, yeah. I've never seen so much incredible art. And again, the competition and all that echelon. I, I, I like what they, you know, attempted to do or did with about bringing the like the Venice Biennale down a notch. The idea that art should be seen in the Guggenheim and in these yeah. incredible places. Let's let's really bring it bring it on. Yeah. Well, what do you think about that, that question? The the cloud. Where do you? Because a lot of people who listen to this are in their twenties early 30s maybe they're they're looking at life and saying i don't want to just have a job and you know i don't want to just check into the grind for the rest of my life i don't want to have a conventional life now you've had one of the least conventional lives <laughs> i've ever <laughs> i've ever heard of well thank you i take that as a great compliment <laughs> you weirdo uh, you glorious um, weirdo. I think it's a question of what you value. And if they really mean that, then look for other things. Don't get caught up into what other people are telling you, like yeah. some other generation. No, you need that degree or you need. And I mean, education is wonderful, It's but it's just not for everybody. Like monogamy is mm. not for everybody. If you actually achieve a relationship with two loving people throughout your life, fantastic. Yeah. But so this idea of an education that you need to get a degree and that that's going to then give you a higher paying job and and then and to be good at something you need to have done it 10,000 hours or what is that uh, theory? Uh, I say follow something of some spark of something that you love. And then that over that that becomes so much more fulfilling than all of the accoutrements that you get for so-called selling out um, and the times that I've say that there's been moments crossroads um i would say don't make any decisions out of fear or out of anger or you know make sure those things pass and i wait for it to feel the spark of enthusiasm and, and of joy 
and uh, and then that builds. You know, I'm I'm pretty enthusiastic and 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 pretty happy most of the time. Um, but I, I yeah, I, I think I, I I cultivate that. I love music. I love art. I love throwing myself in the unknown. I love adventure. So nurturing those parts of my of my being um, create a life that's then I can. I can remember back and, and or embrace what's happening now and, and be creative uh, and feel fully, fully alive. When I'm doing something I don't want to do, you know, maybe there's a good reason to be doing it, but I certainly wouldn't make that the guideposts of how to you know, create a life that's meaningful. And, uh, uh, and then, I mean, the, the world is changing so fast. It's, uh, we have, have to just, I think, learn to be flexible. And, and I see you doing that with your, with your van and being able to travel. I mean, isn't that a wonderful sense of freedom? Yeah. I, I enjoy that much more than a you know, first-class yeah. seat on a plane, which I'm probably going to complain about because it's not quite worth what I, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. or the five-star hotel. I mean, I, f I find someone's kindness you know, is, is, is brings on much more gratitude than when you expect to you just should have better than everyone else. Yeah. I think that's a really good place to end it. Okay. I think you have summed up something so beautifully there. I don't want to step on it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to talk with you on this beautiful day in Katanga oh. and share these moments that we've uh, had some quite an experience together. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about your time in my van. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast and are financially able, go to patreon.com and search for Tangentially Speaking. You enter your credit card, tell them you want to give me a buck, five bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 200 bucks, and then they'll just automatically ding your credit card and you don't have to think about it again. Uh, if you don't have uh, the money to do that, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Tell your friends about the podcast, write a review on iTunes, or just enjoy the podcast. It doesn't matter. I want to thank Basin and Range for that intro music. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun. And you can check them out at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast, you can go to Reddit, where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast. Uh, I drop in and answer questions, post photos, uh, whatever. Pretty cool community there. Another forum where you can meet fellow listeners to this podcast is at t eight. No, sorry, tspeaking.boardhost.com. This has been set up by a listener to enable people to um, register and uh, their different states and countries so you can find people who live near you, get together, have a beer, smoke a bowl, eat some mushrooms, dance under the moonlight, however you celebrate these things. You'll find uh, like-minded spirits on that. It's Again, it's tspeaking.boardhost.com. Dot com. And uh, if you want to get some t-shirts, we have the Civilized to Death shirts, Sex at Dawn shirts, Tangentially Speaking shirts. They're all in my mom's garage. She will get them out to you in a jiffy. Julie, my mom, is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet. So you can find those on my website. That Chris Ryan, chrisryanphd.com, tangentiallyspeaking.com, whatever. You'll find them. Just look in the store there. If you want to buy some other t-shirts from the same manufacturer, that's Shore Design t 
t-shirts. They are fantastic. I know I say this is an ad-free podcast uh, and this could be construed as an ad, but Sure Design t-shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception. Bennett, who was the dude there, decided he was going to support the podcast. He sent me a bunch of shirts uh, at an extreme discount to uh, help us out. Since Bennett died, the people who took over SureDesignT-shirts.com have decided to continue giving us the same deal that Bennett gave us. So be sure to use the discount code CTD, as in Civilized to Death, when you order anything from them and you'll get 20%, 20% off your entire order. That's the discount code CTD. And that's at SureDesignTshirts.com. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at CarseyBlanton.com. She performed this little ditty, especially for us. Sounds like she was sitting in her garage. You can hear the birds chirping. The song is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to live now because you're going to die one day. This is for you guys, Bennett and Justin. Miss you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time? about your reputation trying to meet an expectation wondering what they're gonna say when everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone i don't want to give the end away but we're gonna die one day your body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation running from a a big deal if you want to be free say what you want to feel spend the night with me i'm gonna take you up in my arms and if we must go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground